Welcome to FASD Family Life, the show for families by families where we discuss parenting children and teens with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Robbie Seal, FASD educator, advocate, and mom of four children with FASD. I know the struggle is real, but so is success. And I hope that sharing my experiences can help you feel that you're not alone and that there is hope for you and your child with FASD. Please take a second to like and subscribe to FASD Family Life. Turn on your notifications so you don't miss any episodes. New episodes are released every Friday. I call them FASD Fridays. The podcast is available everywhere. Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Podcast Addict. And I encourage you to share the podcast with your friends, family, and your children's teachers. Thank you so much for all the love I've received in emails from listeners. I appreciate all of your comments and questions. You guys make this podcast amazing. I've heard from folks in Australia, in the U.S., in Scotland, in U.K., and and all across Canada. Thank you guys for reaching out. I look forward to hearing from more of you. Come visit me at Robbie Seal on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for more great content. Here we are, my friends, episode number eight of FASD Family Life, the podcast for families by families, where we get real about raising children and youth with FASD. I am so happy that you could join me. In this episode, we will talk about the primary disabilities of FASD that challenge so many families raising children and youth with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Before we dive into the primary disabilities, let's begin by clearly defining fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. The definition I like to use is from the Canadian FASD Research Network, which states that fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, or FASD, is a diagnostic term used to describe impacts on the brain and body of individuals prenatally exposed to alcohol in the womb. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is not just a childhood thing. FASD is a lifelong disability. Individuals with FASD have a permanent brain and body injury. Individuals with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder will experience some degree of challenges in their daily living and need support with motor skills, physical health, learning, memory, attention, communication, emotional regulation, and social skills to reach their full potential. And these challenges remain for the lifetime of the individuals and become more challenging in adolescence. Each individual with FASD is unique and has areas of both strength and challenges. Did you know that less than 10% of individuals with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder have the physical features of FAS? Individuals with FASD who have an average IQ but no physical indicators still have significant difference in brain function, and these individuals are at higher risk of poor outcomes because their disability is not recognized and therefore it is unsupported. The primary behavioral characteristics of FASD result from the damage to the brain and body because of the prenatal alcohol exposure. As I list these primary disabilities, I want you to think about how these show up in your child's behavior. Dismaturity, or socially and developmentally younger than their chronological age. Difficulty sleeping, slow cognitive pace, receptive language delays, expressive language delays, memory problems, poor working memory, difficulty generalizing or inability to link cause and effect, 
inability to make associations, sensory processing difficulties, so over or under sensitivity to stimuli, impulsivity, poor judgment, difficulty abstracting, inability to predict outcomes, concrete thinking, inability to tell time, understand time or understand money, anxiety, distractibility, and there are over 400 medical conditions that have significantly higher prevalence among individuals with FASD. When we are frustrated by our child or youth's behavior, we must remember these challenging behaviors are symptoms of the primary disability, of brain injury. That's why punishment and consequences do not work. Your child or teen may be unable to learn from consequences because of damage to his or her brain. Cause and effect links cannot be made. Instead, we need to adapt our environment and adjust our expectations to meet our kids where they are at developmentally, not chronologically. I really believe that kids do well when they can. And if our kids are not doing well in a given situation, then as parents, we need to investigate what is getting in the way of our child's success. And we will be tested. This is really hard stuff common point of friction for families raising a child or youth with FASD is our kids taking things that don't belong to them. Naturally, parents and other adults in their lives moralize this behavior and call it stealing. Our first response may be to use natural and logical consequences to deter the child from stealing. But despite our best tactics and sometimes our worst, the behavior continues. We may get angry, We may get frightened and hopeless, picturing a future of the police at our door and our beautiful kid being taken away in handcuffs. But we need to step back, take a breath, and ask ourselves, what if it's brain, not behavior? When we consider how the primary disabilities of impulsivity, dismaturity, inability to link cause and effect, poor memory, and difficulty with abstractions, like understanding ownership, then we can see how these can lead to this behavioral outcome. Because our kids have a physical disability, a brain injury. We must change our environment to prevent the unwanted behavior from happening. We can prevent some impulsive taking by keeping purses, wallets, car keys, medication, cash and credit cards behind locked doors. And if your kids, like mine, tend to eat all the sugary treats and ice cream when you're not looking, you may have to change the environment by placing these things behind locked doors or stop keeping them in your home altogether because consequences don't work. Honestly, this was a very difficult accommodation for me. I used to work in a group home as well as a lock-up adolescent treatment facility and I never wanted my family life and home to feel like a group home. I was stuck in how I hoped my family life would be. I hadn't yet crossed over to accepting how our family life was. The truth was that our children were constantly taking things that didn't belong to them. Money, marshmallows, powder juice crystals, sugar, earrings, cookies, lipstick, tools, tape measures, underwear, screws. I mean, the list goes on and on. We never knew what they had taken until it turned up in some unexpected place, and it was beyond frustrating. I tried everything, logical consequences, natural consequences, tried to teach empathy and consideration of the feelings of others, and believe me, I lost my ever-loving mind on more than one occasion. 
Once I found a small plastic container with white sugar hidden in the bathroom. I dumped out the sugar and replaced it with table salt for my own secret revenge. I asked my adoption social worker if it was normal to have to lock your kitchen cabinets and she told me she had many families on her caseload that have found it necessary to install locks on their kitchen cabinets. Reluctantly, I capitulated and my husband installed locks on our cabinets and on a basement storage room. When we spoke with our children about the locks on the kitchen cabinets and the storage room, we explained that they were not in trouble, but that the locks were in place to help them not take things. And we were astonished by the decrease in anxiety that we noticed in our children and the decrease in stress in our family once we put in place the accommodation that made it much harder for our kids to fail. I'll admit it is still a nuisance to have to wear a lanyard with keys every day around my house, but it's a small inconvenience that has brought tremendous positive results, including better family cohesion by reducing the frequent friction points with our kids. We still encounter times when our kids have taken something that doesn't belong to them, and the rule is if it's not yours, don't touch, but the reality is impulsivity is part of their brain injury. When we find that they are in possession of something that doesn't belong to them, we take that item and ask, where would I return this? And then we return it for them or with them. And our kids give us plenty of opportunities to reflect where we might have messed up or missed an accommodation. When we find ourselves in these frustrating situations, we have to keep our long-range goals in mind, relationship with our child, that they tell us the truth, and that we hope we can affect some learning along the way. Like the time our son came home an hour late from soccer practice, strolling up to the house carrying two large pizza boxes like there was nothing wrong with this picture. His story was he found money on the ground. When I pressed him on that, he changed his story to, some guy gave me the money. Yeah, right. I might have been born at night, but it wasn't last night. I told my son that he was not telling the truth, and I took the pizzas away from him before he got to enjoy the fruits of his labor. Then I sent him to have a shower and get ready for bed. Well, it wasn't long before he called me into his room. Mom, I need to talk to you. As I walked into his room, he asked, am I in trouble? I assured him he was not in trouble but that I was scared because he was late and I was angry that he lied to me and that he went to the store without permission. But he was not in trouble. And that's when he told me he had taken the money from my purse, which apparently I had inadvertently left unattended in the kitchen. There it was, my opportunity to reflect on where I messed up. I should have locked my purse in my bedroom like I normally do to prevent the temptation of taking money. This was also an opportunity to preserve the relationship with my son because he felt safe that he was not in trouble and he could tell me where he messed up too. I could be honest with him about my feelings of fear and anger as well as commending him for telling me the truth. My long-term goal is relationship with my son so that he feels safe to tell me the truth no matter what it is. Another accommodation we have made is to keep our freezer in the garage, which is key locked from the inside of our house. This accommodation is to prevent our kids from helping themselves to food that I am planning for meals, as well as desserts like ice cream. But after finding empty ice cream buckets behind the couch or in a bathroom cupboard and finding the ice cream scoop in the garage, I said to myself, enough is enough. And I've added another layer to this accommodation. And that is, I stopped buying ice cream. 
if I decide to buy ice cream in the future, it will be ice cream bars or something like that with just enough servings for our family so that there is no ice cream kept in the freezer. How did my kids get the ice cream, you ask? I don't know. The honest answer is, here again, we have the opportunity to reflect on where we let our guard down and missed an accommodation. Perfection does not live here, my friends. It's possible that my husband or I were not consistent with locking the garage. It's possible one of us let our guard down with the keys that we wear around the house and that one of our kids seized the opportunity to get into the garage and help themselves to ice cream. It doesn't matter. What matters is my kids have a brain injury, which leads them to act impulsively and not learn from consequences. So when faced with this frustrating situation, I have a number of choices. Natural consequences and get angry and holler at them for stealing the ice cream again. Logical consequence, serve ice cream for dessert to everyone but them so they learn their lesson, but they won't. Number three, I could just be okay with the impulsive behavior and anything goes. Or four, I can use prevention. I can prevent the setup for failure by locking the ice cream away or not buying it in the first place. And most importantly, preserve the relationship with my kids. When I was able to really understand that my four children who were prenatally exposed to alcohol are disabled, then I could begin to let go of my ideas of expectations of behavior and behavior modification particularly. Instead of seeing undesirable behaviors as something to be punished, I began to ask myself, what if it's brain? What's getting in the way for my child? Why is this so hard for them? Are my expectations in line with their capacity? And how can I modify the environment to set them up to be successful? After all, we would do that if our child was blind, deaf, or in a wheelchair, right? My children are disabled and they require accommodations to be successful. And when you talk about these things, these questions and the accommodations you've put into place with your friends and family, well, they may challenge you by saying something like, well, they'll have to be independent someday. That's not how the real world works. You can't prepare your, the world for your child. You have to prepare your child for the world. He's a big boy. He can do it himself. That's when I ask if they would be saying the same thing if my child had Down syndrome. In my opinion, people with visible disabilities are more readily given accommodations and understandings that are not afforded to individuals with invisible physical disabilities. We can't see the brain injury, but we certainly see the symptoms. We have to consider the role of the brain and ask ourselves, what if behaviors reflect neurological differences? Individuals with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder will require accommodations for their entire lives. They won't grow out of FASD any more than any other child won't grow out of blindness, spinal bifida, or Down syndrome. Certainly skills will be learned, capabilities will grow, but the brain injury remains. If you are a foster parent, adoptive parent, or in a kinship arrangement, you may not be sure if your child or youth has fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. However, you might recognize these behavioral symptoms. If your child's birth history is unknown to you, it may be helpful for you to consider the possibility that your child may have been prenatally exposed to alcohol. You see, FASD has been found to be 10 to 15 times more common among foster children, potentially affecting 17% of all children in foster care. 
However, many of the children remain undiagnosed or misdiagnosed due to a lack of knowledge of the birth mother's alcohol use during pregnancy. Here are some interesting statistics that I found on the Canadian FASD Research Network website about the prevalence of children and youth who are suspected of having FASD, but prenatal alcohol exposure could not be confirmed. Therefore, a diagnosis couldn't be given. But research findings show that nearly twice as many children whose parents or relatives are not involved in their lives were categorized into some features of unknown prenatal alcohol exposure. Older children were more likely to be classified under some features or unknown prenatal alcohol exposure, and adopted children were nearly three times more likely to be categorized in this way. It is really important for all of us to consider that fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is the leading developmental disability in Canada, in the US, UK, Australia, affecting 1 in 20 people which is roughly 17 million people in the US and over 1.5 million people in Canada having this disability. And to put those numbers into perspective, FASD is actually two and a half times more common than autism spectrum disorder, 19 times more common than cerebral palsy, 28 times more common than Down syndrome, and 40 times more common than Tourette syndrome. It is not uncommon for the symptoms of FASD to go unnoticed in a child's early years as well. The toddler and preschool years tend to be the golden years for children with FASD. Difficulties become more apparent as children get older and we begin to expect more from them. You see, it's not hard to be three. You just show up and everyone's delighted to see you. But by the time you're seven, you're expected to follow instructions, obey authority, sit still, keep your hands to yourself. Stay quiet for extended periods of time. Read, print, learn to spell, write simple simple sentences. A seven-year-old is also expected to know how to dress for the weather and to come inside when they get too cold or too hot. They're expected to remember to bring their backpacks and jackets to school and back home again. However, these expectations are typically out of reach for a child impacted by FASD because of the damage to their brain structure and brain function. FASD is not easily identified as there are seldom any physical indicators and prenatal history may be unknown by the caregivers. So the child is thought to be lazy, undisciplined, or bad. When behaviors are misunderstood and not recognized as symptoms of a brain-based disability, there is increased family stress, marital stress, family breakdown, and school frustration on the part of the child and the teachers. My own twins begged me to let them drop out of school in second grade, but with a diagnosis at the age of seven and a transfer to a specialized school program, my twins slowly began to blossom and grow. With years and years of support, structure, routine, medication, and daily accommodations, my girls are now earning 80s and 90s in 10th grade. When we can get our heads around the notion that our kids have a brain injury, then we can see the challenging behaviors as a symptom of the disability. Shift our mindset to one of prevention and support rather than punishment and frustration. Shifting our understanding will also improve our family life because we can stop being frustrated and angry with our kids. Parents can get on the same page of understanding FASD is a brain injury, and then they can come together to strategize for prevention and set up their kids for success in predictably problematic situations. 
You know, the daily tantrums and meltdowns after school are not about your child being bad or trying to manipulate you or to give you a hard time. Those daily tantrums and meltdowns after school are symptoms of exhaustion, sensory overwhelm, and finally being in a safe place where your child can let out all of their frustration, her feelings, and pent-up anxiety and still be loved and accepted. They can't do that at school, and that's why Mrs. Teacher never sees this side of your child. Kids do well when they can. I think we all do well when we can. Ask me to speak to a group of people about adoption, parenting, or FASD, and I'll do a great job. Ask me to keep your financial records in order, and I'll protest, saying, I can't, I can't, I can't. And if you force me, I'll procrastinate, and I'll hide it. And if I actually have to do it, well, one or both of us might get in a lot of trouble with the tax man because I'm just not good with that sort of thing. As parents, we can set up our kids to succeed by digging deep into understanding fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and taking a brain-based approach to our child's challenging behaviors. We need to be constantly aligning our expectations of our child's capacity to their functional level, which may change throughout the day. If we know that our seven-year-old is functionally more like a four-year-old, then we can set our expectations accordingly and we can build bridges of support so that he can meet the challenges that life brings him. For instance, we know he needs to go to school every day. We also know that getting ready for school every day is very difficult for him. So we can put in structures in place to enable him to succeed in that area so he's ready to have a good day at school. The number one protective factor for our kids is a stable home. But a stable home is a lot more than a warm bed, food on the table, and a loving family. If that's all you've got, you will burn out. In the next episode, we'll explore what it takes to have a stable home when raising children and youth with FASD. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks for staying with me in this eighth episode of FASD Family Life. And I'd love to hear from you. Please let me know if you found this episode helpful and hopeful. Take a second to leave a five-star rating and a review because that helps others find FASD Family Life, a podcast for families by families where we get real about raising children and youth with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I wanted to share with you too that I recently had the opportunity to be a guest on some other podcasts. I want to tell you about those podcasts and recommend that you check them out. And these generous hosts have graciously allowed me to post our interviews on my podcast so I can share them with you. FASD Hope is hosted by Natalie Vecchione. She's an adoptive mom, special needs homeschooler, and advocate. And I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Natalie and I have included it as my episode number six. Orphans No More is a podcast hosted by Sandra Black. She's the mom of nine, executive director for Justice for Orphans, an author, and so much more. And this was really a great conversation as well, which will be uh, FASD Family Life, episode number 10. Well, my friends, I would love to hear from you. What is your biggest struggle? Email the show at FASDFamilyLife at gmail.com and I'll do my best to address it via email and on the show so we can all learn and grow together. Thank you for sharing your time with me. I know it's precious. And until next week, remember, the struggle is real, but so is success. I'll talk with you soon.